everybody. And thank you for joining us for the second episode of Rethink Reshoring. My name is Kaylee Nix, and I'm very excited to have you guys back with us for this episode. Joining me is, of course, Rosemary Coates, who is the head of the Reshoring Institute. And Rosemary, I think our first episode went pretty good. So we're back again today to dive a little bit into the decision-making process around companies and reshoring. First off, welcome back, and it's good to be here. Thank you. I'm glad to be back, and hopefully we can educate the the uh, listeners on uh, how to make a decision in favor of reshoring. That's a conversation that I think needs at least like four or five episodes on its own, right? Because it's so nuanced and it is absolutely so much determined com- on a company-to-company basis. Of course, we can kind of take a look at general trends about what economies look like, about, you know, if you're fleeing geopolitical conflicts or if you're trying to minimize costs. But at the same time, everything is very, very unique to company situations. And I think that we're seeing that a lot right now as people weigh the decision and weigh if they have the resources to be able to do that. So let's dig right in. Last episode, we talked a little bit about what reshoring is, what it looks like in the current climate. And I think we finished debating about the benefits versus some of the detractions. What do does it look like right now for companies as they start to think about, okay, do I reshore or do I stay? Well, it's very interesting because Bloomberg um, just published, uh, actually in the last week or two, a statistic saying that like 90% of board meetings um, and uh, investor calls in the past couple of months have included some discussion regarding reshoring. So it's really a hot topic for sure. But, you know, executives sitting there, you know, talking about reshoring uh, may not know exactly what they want to do or why. So you know, it sort of starts with the the uh, idea of reshoring, and then trying to determine what you might want to bring back. Um, as we talked about before, if you have a heavy labor content in whatever it is that you're producing, you're probably going to look for a low cost environment. But if you have um, an ability to automate production and you have less labor involved and maybe a new product, then you might favor reshoring. So there's a, there's a lot of stuff that goes into uh, making this decision. Um, I think, uh, you know, thinking through what your products are is one, as you mentioned, geopolitical uh, activity around the world, including over the weekend, we saw uh, the U.S. and uh, China having sort of a uh, a near miss collision in the uh, Taiwan Straits. I mean, these kind of things raise the uh, concern level about long supply chains and manufacturing in China and so forth. And so, you may make a decision based on that geopolitical uh, situation. But I think more often than not, companies are looking at the potential for bringing manufacturing back economically. So is it possible to manufacture in the U.S.? And if so, what would you do? So I think, you know, the first step is to really think through that decision and to talk about it at the executive level so you have an idea of what to go after. Um, You might also think about IP theft, which is becoming... Uh, more and more prevalent every day. I mean, we've talked about IP theft for a long time, but in today's environment, it also includes things like um, counterfeiting, global counterfeiting, uh, which is a a form of IP theft, uh, you know, copying, uh, espionage, all kinds of things that are going on today that may may 
concern you with respect to IP. So what some of our clients are doing uh, is manufacturing the new products or the more sophisticated products here in the U.S. and and not taking them overseas or bringing them back from overseas and keeping uh, the the lower revs or the um, less complicated or sophisticated products, leaving those in your foreign factories but bringing back the more sophisticated manufacturing and uh, the IP and so forth back to the U.S. So that's, you know, just one example of the reason why um, there are, of course, many more. But let's start with that. And I want to put a pin in that IP conversation because I've got some questions about that, specifically when you're talking about countries like the United States that have not only a very robust system of offshoring and reshoring, but also a very robust legislative process and and protection process for intellectual property. We'll table that. Before we get there, though, I want to talk a little bit about companies deciding to move maybe certain products or certain pieces their, of their production back closer to home. Because reshoring isn't necessarily an all or nothing approach, right? When you're a company, especially if you're looking to diversify your supply chains, look about mit- look at mitigating and minimizing risk, you often want to kind of break up where some of your things are manufactured. And it's not you're going to bring everything back home or send everything overseas. You can do a little bit of both, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's what we coach our clients on. Um, you know, it's really not, the, I mean, the word reshoring um, implies that everything's coming back, but that's really not how it happens. It's really a, a more of a global manufacturing strategy where you look at where in the world is the best place to manufacture your particular goods or have an alternate manufacturing site. So, you know, we, ha- we have to consider a lot more things these days. Let's take climate change, for example. You know, you would think that would be kind of a, a crazy idea to consider. But when you have to worry about flooding, let's say you have a factory in South Florida and the typhoon and hurricane season, the hurricane season in South Florida um, is getting more pronounced more often, the seas are rising, that sort of thing. You might want to consider moving that production to a different place or higher ground. And the same is true around the world. And in, in the Pacific, you have to worry about typhoons, which are their name for hurricanes. Um, and if you have uh, typhoon damage over and over again because climate change and uh, the water's warming and so forth, you may want to rethink that decision and move some production to another location. That's just, of course, one example. Um, to mitigate risk, though, worldwide, it's probably in your best interest as a manufacturer to have alternate locations in case there is some event to weather or Uh, God forbid, another war um, or, you know, some other uh, incident that may happen um, that causes you to shut down production in one place. So you may want to have an alternative place to move move production to, even if it's just temporary. So most of the companies that we're dealing with are looking at alternate manufacturing locations um, because they are now much more aware of the risk um, because of the pandemic, which, you know, heightened the risk awareness as well as um, things like global warming and IP theft. All these things are contributing to that decision. Um, I would say also an awful lot of our clients are looking at Mexico uh, as an alternative. 
Uh, it's a low-cost country, especially in central Mexico. The labor rates are very low and they're fairly industrialized. So even if you're not looking for low-cost labor, you're likely to be able to find um, industrial capability in Mexico pretty, fairly easily. And of course, you can just drive across the border. So you don't have to worry about your container sitting out in the harbor for six weeks. Uh, so those are, you know, some of the things um, that are being considered. And, um, you know, there's a, a variable, as you mentioned, every company is different. So you have to make those decisions individually. So bringing production into a different place or changing up where you're producing things can maybe be a little bit more flexible, right? It's expensive and it takes a lot of time and you've got to pick up and leave. But what is very difficult is if you are a company and you're choosing to maybe reassure your operations, but now you have to look at bringing in your raw materials or bringing in those things that maybe you were looking at sourcing in certain places. Because just because you move your battery factory to Mexico doesn't mean that you can automatically take all of your nickel stores, which you need for the battery packs, and stick them conveniently that by your factory, right? What types of workarounds do we look at with going between the the decision to reshore to maybe save costs or to de-risk their supply chain versus still having that need of sourcing your natural materials and making sure that they get there and they're able to do so in a now further location? Yeah, so that's a that's a really interesting point because uh, during the move to offshoring, and that was you know from <clears throat> the late '90s to uh, maybe 2017 or so, 2018, um, you know, most companies were still really uh, seriously considering offshoring. When that happened, then the suppliers went with them. I mean, the suppliers didn't stay behind in the U.S. They went too. Uh, and they started manufacturing their materials and their their products in China as well. So when you're considering reshoring or bringing manufacturing back or to any other country, you have to think about your supply base as well. Uh, so in order to solve that problem in the short term, uh, companies may manufacture uh, in the U.S., for example, uh, and import kits or um, their component parts still from a foreign location, probably China. Uh, but over time, you want to redevelop your supply base in the U.S. So those suppliers that went overseas with you 10 or 15 years ago uh, may still have capability in the U.S. So you might look for um, products in the U.S. that you can substitute. Uh, or you may have to work with those suppliers to redevelop the capacity. So I'll, I'll give you an example. We were working with a client that was trying to find uh, white lithium grease, which is a product that's used in the manufacturing environment for machinery. And uh, all of the suppliers had gone overseas. So while there were still uh, lithium grease manufacturers in the U.S., there was no one producing white lithium grease. So we had to identify potential suppliers, talk to them about if they were interesting, interested in redeveloping this product uh, so that they could then start selling it to manufacturers that had decided to relocate here. So, you know, it can take you 18 to 24 months to re redevelop a, su a supply chain like that. Your supply base, um, you know, is going to be all over the world and may need to be restructured and redeveloped in the U.S. And that takes a lot of work. Um, <clears throat> if you have buyers that are in the purchasing department, 
they're busy purchasing things. So they don't have time for a lot of the supplier redevelopment. So you either have to create um, a new job roles um, for supplier developers or hire it out or um, you know, engage a, a, a company like ours to assist in finding those suppliers. So, you know, the whole supply chain isn't just about the top level and where, you, you know, what product you're manufacturing, but it has to include all the component parts along the supply chain. And of course, all of that comes at a pretty penny. It's It's costly. Let's go back to that IP conversation, the intellectual property piece of it, because that piece really, really fascinates me, especially the decision to move from a different country back into the United States, especially when we know that the United States has pretty robust policy and pretty robust channels for companies or individuals to go through to protect their intellectual property. I don't know how much you know about IP law and about copyright laws and things like that, so I won't get too into the weeds here. But can we talk about companies using that as a strategy or or a reasoning to reshore is to move them back into places where if they're creating a new product or something that has a really, really good go-to-market capability or go-to-market probability, they want to do it in a place where their property will be protected. Yeah. So, yes. Yeah, so the strongest IP laws, I do actually know some about this. I uh, worked on some legal cases as an expert witness on, on some IP cases. Um, so, in the U.S. and Western Europe, they have fairly strong IP laws um, that protect your copyrights and um, your your patterns and you know the things that you would do to protect to uh, to produce a, a particular product. So those are all your IP. I mean, it's your intellectual property. It's how you manufacture something, what the design is, and so forth. So in the U.S. and Western Europe, um, they have a pretty sophisticated body of law that protects you, and you can go to court and sue sue a company if they steal that idea or um, that particular patent is violated and so forth. Not so much in the rest of the world. Um, so in China, for example, they do have IP law, and they have uh, courts that address IP law. Uh, but it isn't as uh, sophisticated or as, um, I think, standardized, I guess I would say, as in other countries. So a judge in one area may make a decision and a judge in a different area may make a different decision. And the likelihood of you getting a favorable outcome uh, for intellectual property protection in China is fairly low you're likely to get a negative outcome and the company in China is going to get the benefit of the doubt. Uh, and then um, the other part of that is that uh, when you're operating in a foreign location, uh, if you register a trademark, then that is the evidence that a court needs forever. Um, so I've, I've had clients that um, had a particular trademark. They were operating in China, producing products in China. Uh, and then they decided to move or, you know, somehow uh, extract themselves from that um, production environment, from a contract manufacturer, for example. And they come to find out that the contract manufacturer uh, or the company that's manufacturing your goods has registered your trademark in their name in China. So now you don't own it anymore. 
surprise, even though you think it's yours and it's registered in the U.S. and other places, if you haven't registered it in China, uh, you don't have a leg to stand on when it goes to court. So, you know, knowledge of the local environment, um, understanding what the laws are locally is very important before you take a risk like that. Uh, and so, you, you know, usually we advise you to, to see an international attorney or one that's familiar with uh, patents and so forth in that particular company and get your product registered. And, and it's not just China. I mean, you really need to look at this across the world. There are certainly plenty of cases in the Middle East where there's manufacturing that has the trademarks have been stolen uh, in other places in Asia, Malaysia and Indonesia. You know, where the IP laws just aren't as rigorous as you would find in the U.S. or Western Europe. So, you know, that can be a huge problem. We see that a lot when it comes to consumer goods and textiles, especially in the the dupe culture, as we call it, where you have maybe a designer item, which is, of course, produced in a very small fashion, slow fashion type of way. And then it translates into a dupe and the manufacturers produce it in rapid succession and you know, they don't have a leg to stand on because yeah. it's not the same. Yeah, and it's not just consumer goods. So, uh, you know, we're not talking about watches and designer purses here. I mean, we could be talking about IP theft in all kinds of products. Um, you know, I always tell people take uh, uh, avionics, for example, uh, in, in the defense industry. There can be uh, counterfeits introduced into the electronics uh, of a product that, look okay and you can't tell them apart and they seem to operate okay but then they fail right or they cause some other problem uh, because they're not the true part they are manufactured to the original design so you know always think about this when i get on an airplane and buckle my seatbelt. <laughs> i think oh man i hope there's no counterfeits in these avionics <laughs> there's there's uh, so- there- there we go there's another avenue for us to go down is counterfeits and what that looks like from a reshoring perspective as well right Yes, absolutely. Counterfeits are a big deal. And um, there are lots of bodies and uh, organizations that are trying to address these issues now. There's a a big anti-counterfeiting center at uh, Michigan State University. Uh, I was just there a few weeks ago. They had an annual conference where uh, they introduced a lot of new technology. Um, There's, uh, you know, a lot of uh, inserts and chips into high-valued products. There's uh, bar, uh, permanent barcoding. There's you know different things that that can happen, as well as working with U.S. Customs uh, to find counterfeit counterfeits at the point of importation. So yeah, I mean we I think that's a probably good topic for uh, another day. Well, we'll write it down. Let's move on a little bit to what the Reshoring Institute did a little while ago. You guys took a survey of U.S. American consumers and kind of polled on opinions about U.S. made goods. There was a while there where it seemed like everybody was talking about made in America, made in USA. That's the way to go. Can you talk a little bit about what some of those survey results showed and were they surprising at all to you guys? Yeah, we we did this. We conducted this survey um, just before the pandemic. So we actually surveyed 500 people across America, nearly 500. I think there was like 497. Uh, And they were from uh, all walks of life, uh, all age groups from 18 through, I think the oldest was 82 or 86, something like that. Uh, All education levels, uh, high school graduates, all the way through PhDs, uh, all regions of the country. Uh, So we tried to pick people from all over the place. 
Uh, and we asked them a couple of simple questions, very simple questions, easy survey. We said, uh, do you prefer to buy products in the U.S.? And um, overwhelmingly, the answer was yes. About 80-some percent said yes. They prefer products that are made in the USA. And then the, uh, the follow-on, the natural question was, would you pay more for them? And out of that group, about 62% said yes. They would pay between 10 and 20% more for a product that, that is made in the USA. And that's a really important statistic because we use that when we're doing economic comparisons because we know if we can get the, uh, the cost to produce between 10 and 20% uh, greater than it is in an overseas location, that we can then charge more for the product. And if we can charge more for the product, even though it's more expensive to make here, then we've got a market. We we know we can uh, we can uh, play into that preference uh, that U.S. consumers have for buying American products. So, you know, we 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 believe uh, wholeheartedly uh, that if we can get those uh, products to be made within a reasonable bracket of costs in the U.S., that Americans will prefer them. They will buy them. And you, you're going to see this. I mean, we had other things in the survey. If anyone's interested, you can get it on our website, which is reshoringinstitute.org. Uh, but what's interesting about that is you can even see it uh, advertised on TV. I think um, real steel, steel products are made in the U.S. and they advertise that on TV. Uh, WeatherTech, you know, they have a big deal about made in the USA. And it's partly because there is a perception, which we also noted in the study, uh, that things that are made in the USA are higher quality, <laughs> which is really interesting because we don't have any, you know, we didn't qualify it in any way. We don't have any evidence that that's true. And I know from having worked in China for many years that you can get perfectly quality, high quality goods from China or anywhere else in the world if you, you know, carefully monitor what's going on. Uh, but there is a general perception in the U.S. that products that are made here are better quality. And that, that um, cor course folds into the idea that uh, Americans are willing to pay more for higher quality products. Whether it's true or not, it doesn't really come into the equation. It's simply perception. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, knowing these things and having that kind of context helps guide the decisions and, and the way we look at uh, these decisions economically. I think that that's a good place to bring this episode home with. You've got about two minutes left. But that idea of perception and consumer perception, and it's almost like an internal bias check, I think, for companies when they yeah. decide where things want to be or where people want to see their goods come from, right? Does that, do you guys think that that has an effect on companies' decision to reshore and where they choose to reshore? If they take a look at their target audience and say, well, you know what? We know that maybe a handful of Americans have an internal bias towards China, so we choose to move our manufacturing away from there or other biases like that. And is that something that companies play into? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, whether it's true or not, and we always discuss this as one of the points when we're talking to clients about where they should be manufacturing. Um, you know, it's it's important to know how your customers feel and how they think about your products. And so it does play into the decision. It's um, I think it's fairly important to know that your clients prefer to see things that are made in the USA. And you can see, 
you know, as I mentioned, you know, WeatherTech and Steel products are advertising. They're made in the USA, but you can see it on all kinds of products where you'll see an American flag, for example, uh, or an assembled in the USA that also has a positive impact. Um, so, you know, I think there's a real preference for it and um, we're likely to see more of it going forward. And that marketing can be just as almost as powerful as the manufacturing when it comes down to it. That does it for us here on this episode of Rethink Reshoring. Rosemary, thank you so much again for joining us this week. We'll be back next week with another one. In the meantime, where can people go to find you or to catch that survey again? Yeah, the best way to find us is through our website, www.reshoringinstitute.org. We're a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization, so you can send us a message there or just email us at info at reshoringinstitute.org. Awesome. And we will be live every Tuesday for these episodes. If you miss one, you can head on over to tv.freightwaves.com, find them on demand. You can also listen to them on any place that you get your podcast, Spotify, Apple Music, all of the above. Thank you guys so much for tuning in this week. We will catch you next Tuesday as well. Thank you.